led by his cross, is this new series that we're diving into for the next five, six weeks as we approach Easter. And if, if we're going to use this next 40 days to reflect, repent and rethink, rejoice in Jesus' forgiveness, and most of all, feel revived at the end of it all, then I think there's nothing better than to reflect on this question. What does it look like for me, for my heart and my mind, to be led by Jesus' cross? That's really the question that's going to be before us for the next six weeks. And it's a brilliant question, which is understandable because Pastor Dustin put this series together, and he's a brilliant guy. Isn't it awesome to think about what does that look like? It, it, it's almost, I got a picture in my mind of a, a cross sprouting legs and heading off. And here I am. Oh, I got to follow that cross, which really, as you already know, means following Jesus, doesn't it? And so as we go through these next six weeks, that image of a cross sprouting legs. I know it's a little ridiculous, but maybe it'll be memorable for you because it's a little ridiculous. And me following and being led by that cross, well, of course, it put into my head an image of a race. The Bible often uses the metaphor, the image of life being a race that we run. And in this case, a race that we run Trailing Jesus, following him wherever the race leads us. How many of you know what a marathon is? You know what a marathon is? Raise your hand. Okay, I think almost everybody knows what a... How many know what an ultra marathon is? Have you ever heard of that? How many of you have ever heard of the Hennepin 100? The famous race right here in Illinois that leads leads from the Rock River in Sterling, Illinois, all the way to the Mississippi River in Kelowna, Illinois. Have you heard of that? Well, let me show you. Here, it's an all-trail race. You, you never go on a road for 100 miles, and you run this ultra marathon for 100 miles. Of course, you know how long it takes to finish an ultra marathon? The fastest time ever in the Hennepin 100 is 13 hours and 54 minutes. And the second place is two hours behind that. This guy just knocked it out of the park with a 1354, just slightly under 14 hours of doing that. In fact, it takes so long that guys often find themselves running at night. Now, isn't that a great picture in some ways of what life is? A race in which we follow Jesus and it leads us through bright times and dark times. And we have to find our way through this life, and how do we do that in a way that can bring happiness and joy and contentment? Just this morning, I heard about uh, a new poll that's out that says people who attend 
worship weekly in a church are far more satisfied than people who don't. I think the numbers, although I didn't memorize them, they flashed across the screen of those who attend church versus those who don't attend church at all is something like 56% versus 42%. That's a pretty wide gap. And obviously, attending church doesn't necessarily mean that you're led by the cross or that you're developing a solid relationship with Jesus Christ. A person can attend church, and maybe none of that happens. But when it does happen, that through church and through God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, we develop a relationship with the Son of God, our Savior. It's game-changing, life-changing, eternity-changing. Because of the impact of the Holy Spirit and God's love on our hearts. And that's what we want to talk about. And we want to talk about this Savior. And I hope you know this. To some, maybe, well, this is kind of an obvious title that Jesus was led to care and therefore we are led to care. But you know what? I've talked to a lot of people who aren't Christians. And the amazing fact is that there are a ton of people. There is a ton of people that don't know that God cares for them. And so that's what we want to talk about. Led by the cross, Jesus was led to care, and then through him, so are we. Let's take a look at what we're talking about from the Bible as the soldiers led Jesus, that's who we're talking about. This is from Jesus' trial. They seized Simon from Cyrene. Here's this guy as Jesus is going up from where he had been tried to Golgotha, where the cross is, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. How many of you are familiar with what's going on here? You may, if you've heard this account before, know that Jesus had come into Jerusalem to great fanfare less than a week before this. And now he's being crucified. I've got a map that I'll put up for you guys. Remember that Jesus, I won't go over the whole map, but Jesus had been celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room 
which was probably located down here in the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem. From there, he took his disciples. They went up through the temple. You can remember the, the disciples looking at the stones of the temple. Maybe you've heard that story. And they're like, wow, this is a beautiful temple. And it was. The temple of Herod probably rivaled the temple of Solomon, if not exceeded it. And Jesus says, you know, every one of these stones is going to come tumbling down pretty soon, don't you? A great lesson about what appears to us to be permanent isn't as permanent as we think it is. So Jesus leads them out here. Now they're in the northeast part in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrays him and he's arrested. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he's put on trial. And then he's sent back around to the Tower of Antonia, or known as the Fortress of Antonia, where he's before Pilate. Pilate, hearing that the accusation is that he's the king of the Jews, says, well, I can get this off of me. He does, you know, later he washes his hands. He, he really doesn't want anything to do with this. But first he tries sending him down to Herod, who was the Jewish king. Herod packs him back eventually. And there then Jesus makes this final journey, which this is where we are today. Jesus is going to go from the Tower of Antonia. I've got a picture of that. This is what it was. This was a Roman fortress, and I don't know how much you can tell, but you can see it's up high, so high that it looks down into the temple grounds so that if the Jews got excited by their worship, the Romans would know about it. They wanted to, the, to monitor these raucous Jews all the time, particularly in their worship life. So that last journey goes from here, where Pilate tries him, to here. Go ahead, show that next slide. Golgotha, the place of the skull. Maybe if you look at it and squint your eyes a little bit, you can kind of see why this hill was called the place of the skull. Now, I'll share honestly with you, that archaeologists and Bible scholars do differ a little bit on where Golgotha actually was. But this is the traditional, most agreed-upon location for obvious reasons. The hill looks like a skull. And that's where Jesus was crucified. So Jesus is on the last journey from the Fortress Antonia to Golgotha, and on that journey throughout and to the end of it, Jesus demonstrates very clearly that his heart is full of care for the people along that way and ultimately for us. His heart is filled with love. You matter to Jesus. You matter to him. And so did these people. So, I want to talk about three things today. Who Jesus cares for, how Jesus cares, and maybe most importantly, why Jesus cares. 
So who does Jesus care for? Well, that becomes evident as we look back over what I just read to you from Luke chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. All that means is there was a gentleman on this road. Jesus likely began to stumble and fall under the weight of the cross. Remember, he had been beaten severely. He had been severely tortured for hours on end as as you see that map that I showed you, and he's grown very weak. And so the soldiers actually kind of show a little bit of care here and say, Simon, we're pulling you in. You're going to carry the cross for Jesus. And Simon follows Jesus, according to the account, carrying the cross of Jesus. A large number of people followed him. So now this... Is, has gotten around the city. Even though Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night, he was tried early in the morning, it's still probably before 9 a.m. People were sitting down, many of them, to eat their breakfast, and somehow the report got around. Jesus has been arrested. And so they've come out, especially these women who are grieving, mourning, and wailing for, for Jesus. And even along with all this crowd were two other men who were both criminals. And all of these really are just an illustration of the different types of people that Jesus cares for. All kinds of people. Soldiers who are about to take his life. Women who were likely followers of Jesus and who are thinking, he's dead. He is literally the walking dead right now. And they're grieving, they're crying, as you would expect them to, and even criminals. And we shouldn't be surprised to see this be the cast of characters, should we? Because throughout the Bible, it, the Bible tells us things like this in 1 John 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our advocate. He's the one who comes and speaks on our behalf because he cares for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Praise God for that. I hope you hear that loud and clear. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the advocate and the forgiver of the sins of Simon of Cyrene, who gets caught on the path. The forgiver of the soldiers who laid that cross on Simon's shoulders. The forgiver of the women who trusted Jesus and believed in him even the forgiver of criminals then and criminals today. And, and we're all sinful. It, it should cause great rejoicing in our own hearts because before God, all of us are criminals. We've broken his law and we need his forgiveness desperately. And what this tells us is that it's yours. I, I want you to do a little equation here. If Jesus' death forgives the sins of the whole world, 
can I ask you what should be in the minus column of that equation? Who should be subtracted from that? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And, and the reason I'm asking this is we live in a deeply divided world. I'm going to make this very practical. All you got to do is, is watch the news. And in this deeply divided world, it's very common to hear people say, you're excluded. You're canceled. You're out of the circle. And in a culture that's gotten more and more used to say, no, not you. You're canceled. Who is canceled from Jesus' forgiveness according to that Bible passage? The answer is zero. No one is canceled from Jesus' forgiveness. He died for the sins of the whole world. I say this for another reason. When you've done enough bad things, as I have, you know what the devil's going to do with you? The devil is called the accuser for a reason. The devil's going to come and he's going to tell you his lie that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world except for, he probably wasn't thinking of, of you when he did that. Because as bad as everyone else is, <laughs> you could say right along with the Apostle Paul, I'm the worst of sinners and I think I'm outside the circle. You will hear that lie from the devil. Guaranteed, we all do. And in the midst of feeling really guilty about a hurt that we've caused or a sin that we've committed, a little suspicion will begin to take seed in our minds and in our hearts and grow sometimes in a full, into a full-blown plant that says, Jesus forgives all sins except this one. And so I'm here to tell you, when that happens, when the devil approaches you, you got to do what Jesus did. Remember what God promises right here in his word. Let's remember 1 John 2, 2. And let's remember why Jesus did that. Remember the theme of today's sermon. Matthew says this. Actually, Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. Hopefully, I'm giving them the right reference. Nope. Revelation. See? Sorry for confusing you guys. Um, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And, and where's this multitude coming from? Jesus forgives all people, which means... From every nation, every tribe, every people in language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. John is the writer of this. And what's John's point here? The things that we might think are going to exclude people from the church, from Christ, from God's forgiveness, things like... Race, ethnicity, backstory, your personal history, none of that matters to God. 
People of all tribes and nations and all peoples will be gathered before the throne. So here's what I want you to write down. Jesus cares for all people, no matter their backstory. So that's who Jesus cares for, all y'all and me. All right? Secondly, how Jesus cares is also critically important. Remember the disciples, how confused they were about Jesus claiming to be the Messiah? And what was one of the big reasons they got confused about Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and the Savior? Well, it was because through all the prophecies and their interpretation of them, they misunderstood them, they saw this coming Messiah as someone who is meant to be very powerful, very glorious. Riding on a donkey on some donated clothes was not their vision of this Savior. They were looking for a mighty king who would cast out the Romans, conquer them, and never be bothered by them or any other usurpers ever again. They saw a mighty, mighty king. And what did they get for a king? They still got the king. They still got the Son of God. They still got the Messiah, the Savior. But what they got was a Savior with a servant's heart. A Savior who was willing to be not spreading his power around to get what he wants, but a servant. Someone who is going to sacrifice it all to the point of going to the cross. I think we can all imagine that would be a tough change. A big, big perspective change. And so when we see what happens, Luke 23, 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Now we, thousands of years later, if we've heard the message of the gospel, we get it. And maybe it seems even elementary to us that, of course, they crucified Jesus. That's what he came for. But honestly, the weakness, the servanthood, that kind of leadership that sacrifices is still a little bit counterintuitive to us. And one of the reasons that a lot of people doubt that Jesus really could be any of those things, the Son of God, the Savior, the King, is still to this day, his very visible weakness, servanthood, and sacrifice. People still today, kind of like those Jews, want a Savior who is going to give them power not offer them weakness and servanthood, and yet that's exactly what Jesus does offer us. Jesus himself came to this place called Golgotha, the skull, and was crucified. So we write this down, Jesus cares with a sacrificial servant's heart. Completely different from what anyone then and probably a lot of people now expect. But it shouldn't be completely a surprise to you. Look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, he's equal with God. And he's not going to use it to his own advantage. He's going to use it to your advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He sacrificed himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the Savior that God has given us. Jesus cares. And how does he care? With a sacrificial servant's heart. Now, this is Lent. This is the time of reflection and rethinking, rejoicing in Jesus' forgiveness and reviving. And I'm going to tell you something very counterintuitive. Because this is Lent, it's time to rethink what we think our power is. To to rethink how we are meant to live in this world if we're led by Jesus, led by the cross. The ultimate, the ultimate picture and portrayal of servanthood and and sacrifice. What's really going to bring contentment and joy and peace in your life? Now, most people are going to say, I'll feel peaceful when I'm no longer a doormat in this world. When I'm no longer being oppressed or asked to make all these sacrifices, when I'm no longer giving everything of myself and getting nothing in return, when I start to come into my own and find my, find my power, don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Don't have to serve anymore. Instead, others will sacrifice for me, serve me. I'll bet everyone in here can think of an environment in your life where you wish you had more power and less weakness. Might be at work. Might be that you're ill and you're struggling with, am I going to be cured of this? I wish I had the power to be cured. Might be in your marriage. Might be with your children. I certainly have some Stories I could tell about how I wish I had a little bit more authority over my grown children. Especially in the realm of faith. But here's what Jesus says and shows. The path to peace is not the same as the path to power. The path to peace in our lives, eternal peace in heaven is because Jesus loved, served us, and now he calls on us in response to his love and service to say to others, just as you matter to Jesus, you matter to me. And how I'm going to show that you matter to me is through service and sacrifice. That's something I'm wagering we can probably all grow a little bit in during the next 40 days. Here's the final point I want to hit on, and this is so vital. Simon Sinek, a number of years ago, wrote a, wrote a book called Start With Why. 
Well, I didn't start with why. I'm ending with why. But it's the same point. The same point is there's nothing more important than why Jesus does this. Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging on this cross. He's under immense torture. And in Luke 23, he looks down and he says something shocking about all the people that have conspired to crucify him. And really, when it comes down to it, because our sins are pinned to Jesus, he's also saying this to us. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Julie and I like to watch a a program We have this interest in agriculture, weird, I know. But one of the ways more and more people nowadays are practicing agriculture is through this practice called regenerative agriculture. And a lot of the people that are practicing regenerative, and and that's really what Lent is kind of about, right? Regenerating, coming alive again, reviving. A lot of people who practice regenerative agriculture are homesteaders. All of this as an explanation of why we love to watch this show. The show is called Homestead Rescue, where Marty Rainey and his son and his daughter visit failing homesteads. I mean, miserably failing homesteads. And they come in because they've been homesteaders Marty's whole life, and he's getting up there. And his children have been homesteaders their whole lives. And so they've acquired and accumulated a a lot of knowledge about how to make uh, a two-acre property, a five-acre property, a 10-acre property work, even work well enough that five acres can support a family. So they come in. And it's kind of interesting because there's something they always do. Every time, without fail. At the very beginning of the show, they look the family in the eye and they say, are you ready to work? And I mean work. Work hard. And the suggestion is, we will do the homestead rescue, but only... If you guys are ready to come alongside of us and put in the work. Now let's take that and imagine Jesus hanging on the cross next to two guys who are within not even an inch of their lives, hanging on the cross to the right and left. How much work are they going to do to help Jesus? How much work are most of those Roman soldiers going to do to help Jesus? Some of them might later regret what happened and see Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, one does, and we're told about it in the Bible. Simon of Cyrene, he later births two sons and the whole family becomes Christians. We know that from the Bible. It's a cool story. But Jesus doesn't ask any of them looking down from the cross, 
I'll redeem you. I'll save you if you'll come alongside me and work with me to make this happen. It's really odd because we do that all the time. If we're going to help somebody, our big belief is, well, God helps those who help themselves and so do I. I'll help you if you'll step up and help yourself first. Jesus merely looks down and says, you have no clue. You don't know what you're doing, but I do. And out of pure grace, out of pure, unconditional love, Jesus does the thing that will, yes, later compel all the people who believe in him to work, not in order to get redemption, but because internally, out of their gratitude and out of their love for this Jesus who has loved them first, oh, they're going to work very hard, but it will be their grateful response, not their attempt to earn anything. And the moment we let just creep in a little bit, the Marty Rainey idea that if I step up, then Jesus will love me enough that he might rescue me the rest of the way. The Bible tells us you're erasing grace when you do that. So it's very, very, very important to understand why Jesus did what he did. You know, Jesus was a man on a mission. And I don't know if you've ever been on a mission. I, I'm guessing, has anyone in here ever run a 100-mile race? Who would be idiotic enough to do that? And my answer is, someone who really cares about racing. Someone who thinks racing really matters for me. Now, I don't know why they would think it matters to the point of running 100 miles, but you don't run 100 miles unless that race matters to you. Why did Jesus run his race? Because the mission mattered to him. And what was the mission? The mission was the mission to forgive. The mission to forgive the whole world. And why did that mission matter to Jesus? Why was Jesus doing that? Who was Jesus doing that for? And I think you know the answer. So let's write it down. Jesus cares because the mission to forgive sin matters to him. And that's because I matter to him. You do know you matter to Jesus. Luke 7, Jesus himself says this. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. We, we studied this on Wednesday night. This is the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are? That's his mission. That's why he's come. And why was this his mission? I'll ask it again. Put the next passage up. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Not one. 
and we're talking about a sparrow. And even the very hairs on your head, this is how much Jesus cares, how much you matter to him. All are numbered. So don't be afraid to me, to the Heavenly Father, to God. You are worth more than many sparrows. God loves you. You matter deeply to him. And when we ask ourselves, why did Jesus come? I hope you know the answer. The answer is because he loves you and he wants you to be forgiven of all your sins so that one day he can show you how much you matter to him by granting you the eternal adventure that's yours in him to be with him forever to be in his embrace and his presence and his power for all eternity. Jesus was led to care for you. And I hope as you hear those words, you grab hold of them with all the gusto you've got over these next 40 days and never forget each day that you wake up, I've got a God and I matter to him. He cares about me. And now let me take that and respond to it by translating it into leading by caring for others. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, we have a race to run. And we need a leader in this race. Sometimes it's bright and daylight and sometimes, Lord, it's dark and we need a light to shine into that darkness. Lord God, as we run our own Hennepin 100 spiritual races, be with us, accompany us, lead us, and lead us by the whole heart that you showed for going to the cross. Help us to see you and that cross with legs going ahead of us every day and run our races, our individual races, with a heart and mind that are filled with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in the Lord's Prayer, William. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever.